This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Maillan. And I'm Luc Olivier Dumeblet. And our topic this week is... iOS 15 Deployment Target. Oh, it's been a while. Well, it's been almost a year since our last Deployment Target episode, so... It's been 20 episodes to the dot. Wow. Uh, but first, I have some follow-up. So, on the last episode, I completely forgot to mention this, but it was our eight-year anniversary... Congrats to us! Yeah, uh, so even if we forgot about it, but. yeah, I I had noted it on the episode before the anniversary that next episode we should say something because it's the anniversary, and then I've had a crazy ass month and I completely forgot. Uh, hey, it's not only your fault. I recalled you mentioned that it was coming to me too, and October. I know we're not in November, but October is our month, and I kind of also forgot to remind you that you yeah. skipped it or things like that. So, happy birthday, Limipo! Yay! While we're on the topic of housekeeping, uh, we are going to have a holiday hiatus once again this year. Uh, so we're going to be starting our break after episode 196 on December 18th, and we'll be returning with episode 197 on January 15th, 2023. Uh, so uh, we're just warning you a little bit ahead of time so you aren't surprised if you see uh, episodes stop uh, in mid-December. Uh, but we'll keep mentioning it on every episode until the actual break. Uh, wait, let, let, let me. Let, I forgot. Like in the pre-show when we were discussing about the items, I forgot to do the count of number. And last time you fucked up the numbers. So, uh, so ninety-three, ninety-four, ninety-five. Okay, ninety-six. That's good. You didn't yes. fuck up the numbers. That's good. I took extra care earlier today when I was creating my calendar events to uh, to make sure that the count was right. Perfect. Uh, so now my actual follow-up, uh, as you may recall, when we were discussing uh, the launch of the Xbox Series X and S, I was discussing that I had some concerns with regards to whether or not the Xbox Series S would be able to scale throughout the lifetime of that generation of consoles, and it seems like many game development studios are currently asking Xbox to please drop mandatory Series S compatibility requirements because Oops. developers are having trouble getting their gun their games to run on it. Uh, it seems like the limits of Series S scaling are already being pushed, and one developer at a game studio called Bossa Studios claims that Series S has turned out to be an albatross around the neck of production. Uh, and a lot of the technical concerns that we're hearing is... It originates from the fact that uh, Xbox Series S has only 10 gigabytes of RAM, whereas Xbox Series X has 16 gigabytes of RAM, a full six gigabytes less, uh, which is prohibitive. That's a lot. For, yeah, it's prohibitive for a bunch of games. Uh, so a bunch of developers are really unhappy with this thing. But again, like it's it's kind of a bad situation for Microsoft to be in as well, because they sold these consoles promising everyone that even if they got the Series S, they would basically have parity with the Series X except at a lower resolution. And it seems that they can't really deliver on that in practice. Uh, so that sucks. And uh, honestly, like uh, many people have been talking about how weird this console generation has been because of the supply issues and all of that stuff. Whereas normally around this time, we would be seeing slim consoles being announced or uh price drops and now we're seeing prices go up on <laughs> ps5 uh, within the last month and then uh, xbox is rumored to be going up in price very very soon uh so yeah that's weird uh and uh from what i can understand 
the bulk of the Xbox series that have been sold in this console generation have been Series S, so it would be very bad if Series S compatibility would be dropped as well. So I think Xbox kind of shot themselves in the foot with this strategy. Uh, at least they should have given Series S more RAM just to be able to stay uh, stay on par with Series X. Uh, and one thing I did not mention is that uh, the Xbox operating system also takes a significant chunk of that RAM and reserves it for itself. So then you've got 10 gigs, less than 10 gigs that is being shared for uh, Jeep, uh, well, graphics RAM and regular RAM. And it, that chunk for the operating system seems to be about the same for Series S and Series X. So in hmm. terms of percentage, you're actually like having a bigger chunk of your of your overall RAM being eaten up by the operating system. Uh, it's just a really awkward spot to be in for Xbox, and I'm I'm lucky that I'm not in their situation. But I don't know what they can do about it to keep both developers and customers happy because they should have seen this coming. That's it for me. We can go right into your topic now. Good. So this week, I'll be running our sixth annual iOS minimum deployment target. Uh, And the goal of this episode is to revisit a new API introduced in the previous uh, iOS version slash SDK. And you might ask why the previous version, not the current. Uh, And the idea comes from a general, I I always say, say the general consensus, but people are more aggressive, people are more laxed, but there's a general consensus, and even Apple suggests that you should follow this, that your app that you develop on iOS platform should support the current OS and the previous OS. So this year, it means supporting uh, iOS 15 and iOS 16. Uh, if you're an iPad developer like I am, um, it's kind of a bit early. I know this episode is a bit early because... Uh, iOS 16, uh, iPad OS 16 just got out, literally, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but in theory, uh, if you're an iPhone developer, you've have been experiencing uh, iOS 16 for about two months now. Uh, if you're a bit unlucky and you need to uh, support because somebody is forcing you to support the N minus two, N minus two strategy, I strongly suggest uh, that you revisit our back catalog of episodes and you go uh, listen. Really, hopefully, right after this episode, you can go listen to episode 173, which is episode 14. And so I was saying it was literally 20 episodes ago. Or if you're even wor- uh, stuck in a worse situation meaning you're stuck in an N-3 strategy, uh, I suggest you go back and listen to episode 152 about iOS 13. So for this week, we will start with foundation. And I was looking at my previous notes from previous iOS deployment target, and it seems that it's not a framework I usually talk about. So that's going to be interesting because foundation, as its name suggests, is the foundation of a lot of other frameworks on Apple platform. And this year it brought, I think, two big improvements and two big two big new functionality, uh, one of which I think is not a new new one, but it's kind of really a big improvement and is on NS-attributed strings, which I should stop calling NS-attributed string because it is now fully backported or not backported, it's fully ported as a value type equivalent in Swift called attributed string. 
So you can imagine that it moves away from the quote-unquote dynamic style of APIs in Objective-C to something that is more akin to what others Swift API are or what people tend to call the Swifty APIs. Uh, on top of that, attributed string is now fully localizable in, in, in using a string interpolation. So if you want to have... Um, localized keys uh, more recently in, in recent uh, Swift version, you could do that with strings values uh, using the string uh, localized initializer. But uh, attribute strings also support those uh, string interpolation. And that was something that was uh, missing in NS attribute string. You, you had to do a lot of uh, work around it to kind of inject a localized string in it and then kind of have parameters uh, to attribute uh, add different attributes to your string or different range of your string on top of making attributed string now a like a first class citizen in swift uh it gained a big feature called markdown syntax support so a lot of it can be used in different places you would not expect. I think a couple of examples I've seen uh, during my research is uh, a lot of the text view in SwiftUI are just asking you for a string or now can take an attributed string, which means that now they can take markdown syntax. So let's say if you do were to do star star hello world star star, you would end up with a bold uh, text view on your screen. And they also discussed some of the custom attributes that they support into Markdown. Um, a couple of examples of custom attributes they mentioned about. You can put the link, you can put a reference to an image, and also they've added um, support and spe spe uh, special syntax to provide your own custom attributes inside uh, your Markdown text that you put in an attributed string. Uh, funnily enough, because of those custom attributes, uh, Foundation now supports JSON 5 because they're using JSON 5 as a way to declare uh, the key values uh, in those attributes. Um, so it means that all the JSON parsing APIs are also supporting JSON 5. Uh, so overall, like attributed strings have become a bit more powerful and also uh, are made a bit easier to use in Swift. A good example I can give you is they've added an attributed container or attribute container where you can define your attributes in a knob, in an object or in a type uh, to store them and you can have a couple of merge operations and don't have to rely on like dictionaries with keys and relying on like name keys specifically so a lot of it is type safe you have uh, enum definitions for a lot of those apis which makes it uh, really neat to use i haven't used it personally but for sure a lot of the example i've seen make it really uh, nice especially if you've uh, wanted to do simple things I, I think my main gripe with ns attributed string is it's powerful but for sometimes to just have like, let's say you don't want to create a view where you have two labels, one that is more, let's say the text is in bold for one sentence and the rest is just normal text. You would end up just creating two labels just because it was so painful to deal with an attributed string that like simple layout 
constraints or just layout of text, you would end up doing with multiple labels. Uh, whereas I've seen with this API, I, I like it invites you, it invites you as a developer to kind of use it and kind of not relegate it to the back corner and just say, oh, okay, I'll use it really on and only really, really when I need it. So I'm pretty eager to see. I it's what was one of the change, and I think that's going to be a team for today's episode um, is that there was a couple of changes that I forgot about in one year. And I was like, oh yeah, they, they, they're not big deal, but they are like fun improvements. And I think they bring, they would bring value in my day-to-day life as a developer. Yeah. I think the markdown thing is big for that because I know attributed string has had support for some HTML syntax for a while. Right. Agreed. But it's still more clunky to write HTML syntax into your code than it is to write Markdown or leave that into an external uh, resource. And it allows people who are less technical to actually mess with those strings because there's just less daunting syntax for them to mess up. Right. And that's kind of why the... the promoted json5 for the custom attribute so uh an example of an attribute is to say okay i want the foreground color of this text to be this color like this is the type of attributes or i want this text to be bold like that's what they consider attributes and foundation so this defines attributes uh ui kit swift ui app kit define their own sets of attributes first of all you can augment uh their own set or even create your own custom set uh, to support and the reason they use JSON 5 is because part of the custom attributes definition in your markdown text it is written there and on top of having this fully localized you could literally allow your translation team to put on those markdowns symbols for you knowing that markdown is a bit simpler than writing html and html tags so i totally agree with you on on this yannick that markdown is a a great uh benefit for the life of maybe less developer focused people that will have to deal with a lot of your strings yeah okay um next up in foundation which I think it's another big change that doesn't seem so, but it's a big improvement to another set of classes that were still stuck as an S object base class, and it's our, it is formatters. So foundation contains a lot of types that can be formatted, and you could create an S something something formatter so ns date formatter ns number formatter ns person name components formatter so you will always have to build a formatter object with all the properties you want so let's say you want a full date i want year month day and time of the day uh, and then add the call side where you want to have the formatted value you say here's my date formatter give me a string out of it uh, now in foundation, a lot of the, those base type now have a formatted function on them. So you don't really need to create a formatter object anymore and store that because formatters, especially the NS object one, uh, the NS object based ones, they were pretty easy to create. So it was something that you don't want to create multiple times in your app, especially if you were formatting text, like in the table view cells, for example, you want to kind of have a static intents that you would, uh, 
access multiple times to format. So nowadays, let's say that you have, again, let's take our example where we want to show a date. This date, you don't need to create a formatter. You just say where, when you're about to assign its value to a label, you say date.formatted, and then the formatted function provides you with a lot of parameters or a, a way to compose and define what you want to define. So what I mean by that is uh, the formatted function for a date might take a parameter called date and time but then you can say i want a date and time and just in i just want the minutes to be in that format so you really can have again a swifty way of defining with dot notation the behavior of the formatter without having to define an object store an object in a local variable and just make that into one uh literally call and it's kind of funny because I completely forgot about this, but I remembered it and I kind of said two things that are not equal just right now. So uh, I think a couple of, I think it's about 10 days ago, I was writing some code um, first in the Swift UI and then in the UI view. And I wanted to write um, a formatter for it. It was just an int. I wanted to make sure that it's like to string. And I don't want to do string int. Uh, I wanted to use a number formatter for this case. Uh, to do the right thing here. Uh, and I kind of remember there was something, but I was not able to find it. So it was funny when I was preparing for this week's episode and I was like, oh yeah, that's what I was thinking about about 10 days ago and I forgot. So uh, in preparation for this episode, I kind of put the notes like, okay, I need to go back to my PR and put a, a, a self comment saying, okay, yeah, I need to use the new format method for this int that I need to format and not use NS number formatter. Because I remember it was kind of, it was weird because I had to A, create an NS number formatter and then B, because it wouldn't take Swift types like an int, I will have to add to convert it into an NS number first and then pass it as a value to the formatter to then receive and a nesting that can be bridged uh, more easily. So um, these new methods are applied or allow, are added to a lot of base types, I'll say so, and they applies to the 10-ish formatters that are already present in foundation. So date, including its ISO 8601 formatter, numbers, list, date components, measurements, uh, person name components, relative date, uh, date interval, and by counts. And it's really interesting for date interval or for list, for example. So uh, I think a lot of the example Apple has shown about their list formatter is you say, let's, they have, let's say a sandwich app um, and you want to format a list of ingredients and you don't want to remember that, okay, you then use like comma, 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 and, and then like you don't want to remember all those rules for all the language you want to support. That's how the list formatter it will do that for you. The nice things about that is you would imagine that if you deal with the data now and not have to deal with the formatter object, you would like to do that on an array. And guess what? If you have an array of data and you want to format it with the list formatter, you just do, you take your array dot formatted and you pass it the dot list formatter as a parameter. So those methods are really close to the data that you're used to use as a developer. And you don't have to have this overburden of using NS-based, NS-object-based 
objects to do that work. So uh, again, I don't know if it shows, it's kind of a boring topic for matters, but I'm super excited about this change because I think this is yet again another example where it's a small change, but it's a like it's a big improvement and a big code simplification change that uh, you could do. And lastly, uh, I was about to skip it. The other example I had is when you create a date range using the range uh, operators in Swift. So let's say you said like date dot dot uh, smaller than and another date in a range in parentheses. You can also do dot formatted and then you would end up with a date interval that you can format. So pretty powerful, but pretty simple at the same time. So that wraps it up for the new changes that I think you should consider in iOS 15 SDK under the foundation framework. So now let's move into a framework that you might have heard more frequently in those episodes. And we're talking today about UIKit. And in uh, in iOS 15, I was looking at the changes that UIKit, like a lot of the changes that I saw uh, that are important in iOS 15 SDK are changes that I would suggest or I would think that you wouldn't really wait to bump your deployment target. They're, they're, they're kind of nice to have already that if you were running an app on iOS 14 and iOS 15 at the same time that you would kind of do the if available iOS 15, please do that. Uh, but before I go in through that list, uh, I think there's one major big feature in UIKit, uh, part of iOS 15 SDK, that is worth a close look, and it is called UI button configuration. And it's funny because it is pretty, it's closely inspired, but something I discussed last year uh, and introduced in iOS 14 SDK called the content configuration objects for UI collection view and UI table view cells. Um, so if you re- may remember, those two objects are a configuration object that you provide to those classes and that Apple knows what to do with it. Meaning that if you want to have a custom behavior or a custom way to define the data shown in a UI collection view in a UI table view cell, Oh, like typically, originally speaking, you would have to create your own subclass and do a lot of custom code and custom view code. And content configuration got rid of that in most cases. You might have to do that because today the content configuration objects doesn't support something you do. But the the raise the bar when you're forced to do that versus what we used to have with UI collection view and UI table view sales object. So you might imagine that if I bring those two examples up, UI button configuration is the equivalent for UI button and you're right. Those support, again, Apple do that Apple did that and you realize quickly when they talk about it because a couple of examples they mentioned that, oh, UI button configuration support dynamic type. It supports accessibility by default. It even now supports easier customization. So the goal of those configuration objects is, yes, as a developer, you might lose more flexibility because like it might take, I don't think it's the case yet because, but again, take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt because I've started to use those APIs. So I've then like found though the limit. But again, my first thinking when those types of API was is like, okay, like Apple is trying to push us to not do too much custom code. 
for our own needs. And I think in the end, it's a good thing because when you have to argue with uh, people at work, and I'm not saying it's an example at work, but let's just say for the sake of argument, like you have to justify doing dynamic type and things like that or accessibility where it's hard to push a PM to do that. Like having tools in your API that makes that work for free even when you start to have a customized look that your designer is pushing but it's not exactly what the api allows it's fun that those objects are now there giving you more customization options without having to build it from scratch and kind of breaking things that your users will expect from running an app on ios from using an ios device um Another big thing that, that was not present and was kind of somewhat hard to do was multi-line support in the button. Sounds simple <laughs> and trivial to do, but if you've played with UI button in the past 15 years, literally, you realize that, yeah, UI button was a beast on its own and having, having things like that, uh, or having custom images and just trying to define if the image is before or after the text and then the changing just a bit of the spacing between the image and the text was a pain in the butt to do and a UI button configuration makes it so easy to do that. I've played with it even I think two weeks ago at work uh, for a feature that I'm building and it's quite powerful. One of the things that comes to mind whenever I see those kinds of configuration objects is I wonder if Apple's kind of exposing the backbone of Swift UI because they have to map onto existing controls. So it's right. like it it's kind of like if they're showing you what they actually use in Swift UI to map their descriptive UI to uh, imperative controls. Uh, I don't know if it's actually true. I, I haven't fact checked that, but it certainly seems that way from the outside. I get the same vibe too because, okay, I'll go on a small tangent on why I was using it. And uh, so at first I was kind of trying to build a view in SwiftUI and I was using the button style, having my own custom button style. And also so pretty neat. It kind of reminds me of what those configuration job object are. It's a struct that defines how to team a button, literally, uh, so that you can then say, take this default button and just apply this style to it. And then uh, when I realized I had to put it in a navigation bars title view property, I couldn't use a UI host controller because that was uh, really complex with uh, UI view UI view control containment. So I had to resort to rewriting it in UI kit. And then I was like, oh yeah, we're about to go, go to iOS 15 deployment target. So let me try UI button configuration. And funnily enough, somebody in the, in the team previously did create one of our like design helpers saying, oh, if it's an iOS 15, then just uh, use UI button configuration and adding the couple of properties we were not exposing in our design library that UI button configuration supported, like was a couple of lines of work, I exposed them and it was the design I needed to do was already something that UI button configuration did. And I know it was something that was not done before uh, and was would be have been hard to do with UI button directly because I kind of have to have a pill shape. That's, it's, it's really like a, a pill shape. So we have like, 
a half circle on each extreme of the button and then you have an elongated uh, middle portion and it's a filled button with a color and things like that. I remember having to write my own subclass to do that and I dreaded having to rewrite it in UI kit and then when I used UI button configuration, I was like, wow, okay, things like that that used to be days of work are now literally minutes. So really fun to use and really powerful to use. Uh, another good example of things that were hard to do before is to show an activity indicator. So you press on a button, when it triggers a network call, you can just tell the configuration to show an activity indicator. Based on a lot of the new functionality in iPadOS, and I, I say iPadOS, but I think it's kind of a, because it's on iPadOS and it's also in Mac Catalyst, it's also available on Mac <laughs> Swift UI, there's kind of, a range of new controls that now are available on, on iOS. And a good example of that is toggle buttons and pop-up buttons. So a toggle button is, you don't have to use a UI switch. You just press and it has a selection state when you tap on it and things like that. And again, all of those new functionalities are well-defined into UI button configuration. Last but not least, a UI button configuration con- uh, introduce something called a configuration update handler because part of what I discuss about UI collection view and table view sale, it was fun to say, okay, I define my own configuration for the current state, which is kind of the normal state of a cell. But what if the cell gets selected? I want to change the configuration. And to do that, you still have to rely on a subclass of the cell view and then listen to a UI view event that says, hey, I want the state has changed, you want to update your configuration. And now part of iOS 15 and for sure part of UI button configuration, there is a new configuration update handler property on UI button, on UI collection view and UI table view cells that allows you to provide a closure to update the configuration of the view based on its new state without having to subclass each of these objects. So it's really like you pass in the configuration, you also pass in this closure, and now you're more or less able to define imperatively those views and buttons and not have to rely on subclassing to do state changes. So it's super easy to say, take my default configuration I just gave you. If you're selected, use this background color. If you're not selected, use that other background color and then have a closure that just do this switch to go back to the toggle buttons when I'm selected or when I'm unselected, use different properties of my configuration and have just a small blob of code for that uh, to be passed around. Another powerfulness of UI button configuration, Apple has been pretty open about it, is the new introduction of CL location button. I don't want to go too much into details about uh, CL location button. If you deco- if you listen to our, not this year's episode about availability, but last year's, uh, so uh, about 18 months ago, Yannick mentioned watch and summarize the meet the location button session um i forgot to take note of the episode number of that wwc episode but uh it is one of the new components that apple provide that guess what is kind of buys uh, apple says it built it internally using ui button configuration just to show how powerful this feature is that's why this sounded familiar. <laughs> also, yes. I can't believe it's last year's episode because it feels like it was this year. What is time? 
Yeah, no, exactly. And th- don't don't forget that we're kind of about 15 months since WDC 20, 2021. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yes, time flies. Time flies. Um, the rest I have to talk about UIKit. So, there are years where I feel that there are big changes to UIKit. And this year... Uh, this is the big one. Uh, the other things are trivia points. Uh, and I don't want to downplay it, saying they're trivia points. But again, they, they feel to me like, again, small improvements where if you've been developing iOS apps for the last 10 years, you know it's a pain in the butt. A good example, I know it's not iOS 15 specific, but it was introduced in iOS 14.5. It is UI list separator configuration. And guess what? It's a configuration object that allows you to customize the list separator in lists. Uh, and if, it is funny because it was something that's UI, uh, Swift UI supported before UIKit. And then that got introduced in the iOS 14 timeline. Uh, and it's something that I wish we had literally 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> uh, or even like five years ago. Like the amount of stupid code you have to write to get rid of a separator and then create your own separator so that you can determine on this row I want to separate on that row. I don't want it because your designer wants a specific look and feel. Now you could just do it. Literally the OS allows it to do so. So the next three points are example like these. You'll hear them and you'll be like, Oh, nice. I can just do that in a couple of lines of code, not having a bunch of custom code just to do that. Uh, before I'm going into a couple of those examples, for sure, as with every iOS releases, there are important features or important APIs that are added based on important UI or look and feel changes. A lot of them about the iPad, especially about the pointer. So now you have an iBeam cursor. You can have different uh, pointer accessories that they are called. Um, Another example is the introduction of a centered window uh, that to this point, uh, a year after that got introduced, I haven't seen too much iPad app use it. It's just in mail, right? That's the only example I was (laughs) about to mention that mail does it, but I don't see anybody do that. And again, that you can uh, create on the iPad again, you there's this new uh, shortcut menu when you press and hold the command key that is now kind of based a bit on the Mac menu look-ish, but is built on top of UI menu builder that was new in iOS 15. So if you're an iPad app that has a bunch of shortcuts, uh, but that you're still using the old uh, UI key command definition or the way to expose it, think about modernizing using UI menu builder so you can have find, uh, file, edit, uh, window, help, all those categories in the beta state. It's really weird to me that that still isn't exposed when you have a mouse connected. Like, I, sure, I'm going to shit on the idea of having a keyboard and mouse hooked up to your iPad in the first place. Like, everyone knows that's what my character is. But, like, if we're going to live in a world where that is possible, it feels very weird that you would not show that menu bar at all unless you hold down the command key. Um... Yeah, I seriously don't know what to think about that. And I don't want to add too much because I worry we'll move into a tangent of bitching about multitasking iPad and things like that, uh, which 
I don't want to go. We are but, both uh, overdosing on that these days. <laughs> exactly. But no, uh, like, I think maybe the, the one thing I'll say is I think I like the new presentation that was introduced yeah. in 15. Uh, and that's kind of, I, that's why I agree with you that I feel it should be more accessible because I think it's well done. Speaking of new UI look and feel, uh, UI toolbar and UI tabbar have a new look in 15, and I forgot exactly in which version that UI navigation part did this, but when you scroll at the top or scroll at the, now at the bottom of a list, they would kind of blend with the background and not have a separator line. Uh, so again, uh, if you like this behavior, Congrats, the iOS 16, uh, 15 SDK does that for free. If you don't like, you can tweak uh, their appearance by using the scroll edge appearance property on UI toolbar and UI tab bar. This is a property that you might already use for your navigation bar to tweak its own uh, functionality when Apple introduced the new look and feel for UI navigation bar and the way it blends with the scroll view when your scroll at the top and now at the bottom. Uh, there is new uh, either style or a list style that you can use based on depending if it's in a uh, depending on the look and feel you want to have. So there's a prominent inset grouped list and the extra prominent uh, prominent inset group header style that you can use depending of the type of list you're building and for sure depending if it's a sidebar and things like that so that's why they're introduced because apple needed them for their own new behavior and new apps uh, and they're doing that too three other quick points uh, uh a really interesting one especially once you you want to build UI that adapts to dynamic types, which I think is an important thing uh, all developers should do. Uh, but now Apple has introduced UI view minimum content size category and the equivalent UI view maximum content size category. And this allows you to limit certain views to not go below a certain dynamic text size and the maximum size. So you could say that I think the best example they give you when they talk about this API is, for example, in the clock app, when you have different time zones, the time is pretty big already. So you could give it a smaller range of sizes so that if you're somebody that has, uh, that is visually impaired and you bump up your text to be at like accessibility XXL, you don't like, as a developer and a designer of application, you don't want it, this text to be already too big because it's already big part of your design. The same thing can be applied about text that is already small. You might not want it to go too small so that every uh, like a lot of users can still read it even in uh, small sizes. Uh, and when they talked about this, I was like, or when I was reading the comments and I saw that, I was like, oh yeah, that's really useful. But I'm then I'm like, it has been a while since dynamic tag has been introduced. I'm surprised it took them them this long to kind of do that. That's exactly uh, but, what I was gonna say. <laughs> but I'm glad it's here. So um, again, uh, you would have to. I guess you would have to do it manually before. Now UI view can do it for you. UI color picker view controller that was discussed last year, uh, which is more or less a. Uh, color picker uh, can now allow for continuous color selection, which 
I didn't recall it was something they couldn't do before, but now it seems that they can. So I guess uh, when they introduced that new control on iOS and UIKit, uh, they kind of forgot that the Mac one would do that. So now they allow uh, the UIKit equivalent to do continuous color selection for color palette and things like that. Last but not least in the uh, UI kit section, and that's one was funny to see again because uh, since the introduction of the new like notification banner for paste events and things like that, uh, I forgot that one of the reasons why those banners were introduced is because they also add a new paste action it can support. So by default, uh, any of your any view in the responder chain can provide the paste method and it tells the OS, oh yeah, okay, so somebody can react to paste events. But now you can have paste and go, paste and search, and paste and match style as type of paste actions that a UI responder uh, object can just implement. Uh, And once it's part of the responder chain, the OS will know uh, what to do with it. A good example of that is, let's say, a view uh, will respond to those methods. Then when you press and hold the view, you see the pop-up notification, a pop-up menu that appears, and then you have copy, paste, and you would have paste and go, and paste and search, and paste and match style added to that list. Okay, now that we're done with UIKit, let's talk about SwiftUI, which I think at this point they're kind of uh, getting closer to together uh, and I think that's if I were to assign a team to this that year's release so the iOS 15 release of SwiftUI let's not forget it is the third release of SwiftUI they're not version but if I were to apply a team to it uh, and even Apple kind of implied this I think I think a lot of the changes are for broader reach and adoption of Swift UI. So again, kind of getting rid of you having to do custom code for basic functionality that a UI framework should provide. And a good example of the my first uh, the one of the first new introduction I want to talk about is async image, which is a view <laughs> that show an image but by loading it asynchronously from, let's say, the network, for example. So if you provide the URL to a resource remotely, uh, Swift UI will take care of showing a placeholder, like downloading it asynchronously, not blocking UUI, and making sure that it doesn't uh, impact scrolling performance too much by loading this image. Related to allowing developers to adopt SwiftUI even broadly in their application, uh, the next view modifier called Refreshable is now uh, included in SwiftUI and that allows you to support behaviors like pull to refresh on less on uh, iOS and iPadOS. So previously in SwiftUI, you couldn't do a pull to refresh or you had to write your own kind of pull to refresh behavior. Now uh, the Refreshable modifier where you can pass it an async task to it. And we'll talk about uh, Swift concurrency a bit later. Uh, But things like that can now be easily done and have a default look and a default iOS pull to refresh experience the second you just provide it with something to refresh, more or less. 
quickly to Swift UI, and we'll discuss it more in the Swift concurrency section. But Swift UI has been updated to support Swift concurrency and allow you to add task to attach. No, excuse me, not to allow task, but to attach task via the task modifier to attach an async task to the lifetime of a view. So let's say you want to do something asynchronously when the view is alive, uh, and when the view gets killed because it's no longer on screen and then it then uh, SwiftUI will take care of canceling and using uh, the Swift concurrencies to make sure that this task gets out of the way. A couple of uh, small things that I think are going to be really important for list. There is three new modifiers for list. The first one is less row separator tint to change the tint color of a separator. The less row separator that you can pass in the hidden modifier as a parameter. Guess what? To get rid of the separator. So we go back to what I was discussing in UI kit and you'll see like, I'll, I'll stop there for a sec, but a lot of the changes I've like a, I wanted to separate to go by framework, but I could have said, okay, here's the new UI feature. Okay, the equivalent in UI kit is this, the equivalent in Swift UI is that. A lot of those small changes like these happened a lot in the iOS 15 SDK. So it's really uh, fun to see that even if, as we saw this year in, at WWDC, that Apple is pushing forward with Swift UI and saying that's the way you build app, that at least The reason to say no to SwiftUI is not because it's missing feature, but maybe more because you don't like the approach it uses to build UI. So uh, another good example of that is the searchable modifier, which was to add a search bar. Uh, you had to do that manually and things like that. Now, if you add a searchable modifier to a review hierarchy, SwiftUI will take care of adding the search bar for you in the most appropriate place in your UI. For sure, it assumes that you'll add the searchable modifier to a navigation view uh, in most cases, so it knows to put it in the navigation bar. But uh, again, in most cases, that's what you'll do, and then you don't need to pass in multiple things. I think the searchable modifier just takes a binding to a text, so When you type a text, it gives you the value so you can do your own sorting and things like that. So it's really simple for this. Now let's talk about the new view that was created that Yannick was eagerly awaiting and got eagerly disappointed, if I can say so. So SwiftUI introduced a new table view and here it's not the weird UI table view that's a... It's a table, but only has one column, which is what UI table view is. But here it's a table with uh, with the Mac meaning behind it. So it's a table with multiple column. And in, uh, I don't want to say iOS 15 SDK, but kind of iOS 15 SDK. But uh, in this version of Swift UI, this is only available on Mac OS as a view. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> but... Um, Keep an eye for, I guess, next year's episode. Or if you're curious, you can just go see the documentation because that's changing. So part of iOS 16, uh, so Swift UI 4, let's put it this way. So the, the release that got released uh, about two, three weeks ago, uh, two, three months ago, excuse me, uh, now supports iOS and iPadOS for this new table view in Swift UI. Uh, with fun caveats on phone, I uh, will yep. let you look on Twitter about developers pitching about the maybe lack of user's fullness for 
the table view running on iPhone, but on iPad and macOS, it seems pretty interesting. Uh, while we're on the topic of lists and tables, um, Swift UI up until iOS 15 couldn't allow you to have swipe action and custom swipe action. You would could do swipe to delete, but to add like um, swipe to pin, for example, and all, all of other swipe action, swipe gesture you would see on cells, like for example in mail, uh, you wouldn't be able to do that. Nowadays, you can do that with swipe action modifier by specifying whether there are leading or trailing edges that they should a- apply this. And it's pretty... Uh, uh, it's a broad API, meaning that literally it takes, it's a closure that returns a view. So you define what you want to put there. Again, in most sensible cases, it's going to be buttons that you'll put there. But I think it's pretty powerful to see that it's just a view that returns a view, a modifier that returns a view. So if you want to go crazy and just build a custom view and blah, 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 you can do it. Not that I would suggest that. Last point about list is if they're backed by core data, uh, they're now more powerful in Swift UI from last year. Uh, so the uh, fetch request property wrapper gains support from predicates and sort descriptor so that you can cust- have your own sort descriptor or your custom sort descriptor that you want for your data. So you don't, you don't end up with the list of data and then you have to sort it manually once Swift UI loads it from core data. And they've added a new property wrapper called section fetch request that, as its name suggests, allows you to fetch data from core data by section. So to kind of do group by operation. Okay, I want all of my, let's say my events per date and be able to build a UI that is full of sections. So I have my event for today, for tomorrow, and for the day after and build those. So before, you have to do that manually or rely on UI kit and previous tools. But now you can do that in Swift UI with those new property wrappers. Okay, now that we've talked a lot about lists and tables, we'll switch gear and go back to just general uh, Swift UI components. So uh, there are a couple of new things about drag and drop. I think uh, one thing that is really interesting is the new import item provider and export item providers modifier, which are item modifier to say, I'm able to receive data of a certain type in this view, or I'm able to export data of a certain type for this view. Um, The example I've seen in Apple's documentation for the import item provider was to support continuity camera uh, in your app. So let's say you have a, I think it was a recipe app or no, it was a, a, I forgot why, but it was a hero and villain app. Okay. But sure. Yeah, I, I <laughs> forgot why, but that's what their demo app was about. Uh, and for sure, for those characters, you could uh, upload or you could add in the app an avatar to them. And for sure, the way they have uh, implemented the import item provider uh, was to say, "Oh, I want to snap a photo of of something in my living room uh, with my camera on my phone," and then. I can do that and import it whether I was doing that like drag and drop. And same thing with uh, export item provider. The example was saying is it's a way for the app to export data, to export it to a shortcut, for example. 
Um, so that was another one. And last but not least for drag and drop, the reason I, I put it in the drag and drop category is because item, uh, all of those APIs with NS user activity are all in the same blob of APIs, even in SwiftUI, which is funny and sad because uh, I feel sometimes that uh, Apple is over-abusing of NS user activity, but hey, yeah. it seems to work. It seems to work. Uh, is that now the uh, when you have an undrag modifier, so that's not new, so drag and drop support, but you now have a new preview closure where you can define a custom view. So when the drag happens, uh, it's no longer SwiftUI that decides what's the preview view that is shown when you're dragging and dra- dragging around. It's your code that decides what is the drag preview uh, for a drag operation. A nice new view that was added is called Canvas. And to me, that's kind of the Swift, equiva- the Swift UI equivalent to doing your own draw code in UI views draw rec or even just building your own layers. So it's a canvas where you just do draw operation but using Swift UI APIs and you can have quite fun with it and it's quite powerful. I again I don't know what do you would do with it. Uh, I think Apple's example in the dub video was uh, kind of it was the grid of all the FSS symbol icons, and it was making funny animation when you were like cursoring over over it. Uh, but the TLDR is now a canvas; you can draw whatever you want on screen with it uh, by doing draw operations on that. So if you want to have like custom look and a custom blob on screen, you can do that with a canvas. Uh, you i think i talked about that on the same wdc episode where i talked about the location button possibly possibly um again we talk about so much of the session that sometimes i tend to forget about what we talked and we didn't talk but uh because i've seen this in the what's in swift ui i wouldn't be but again that's okay uh another good new modifier that makes sense and even more makes even more sense with the new iPhones announced this year is the privacy sensitive modifier and as its name suggests it is a modifier that you apply to a view that it wasn't it was mentioned last year to say hey if it's on the watchOS app you can and it's on the watchOS app that now with watchOS 8 at that time uh it would show your app when you're running on always on and not have the clock overlay. So you could use this modifier to say, hey, this is containing, this view is containing sensitive data. So when you're in always on mode or standby, I should say, don't show this, you're blurred, this, you're just trigger uh, something to get rid of the data shown there. And that also at that time was applying on widget and now could only also apply on the widget shown on your iPhone lock screen when it's locked and always on. Uh, as mentioned in the uh, foundation section, you can use markdown formatting in all the labels and texts and text field properties in SwiftUI because that's in foundation. And guess what? SwiftUI uses foundation and that's just available. Same thing with text field views. So those controls now have a new pro- property in there in it where you can say, give it a formatter so it will use the new formatter style discussed in the form that we discussed to apply a formatting to the input you provide. So by using this formatter, I can do the, okay, I'm giving it a non-formatted value and it formats it, or while I start typing, it can apply a formatting to my input. Same as UIKit, 
We talked about uh, restricting which dynamic text sizes uh, can be applied. You can do the exact same thing in SwiftUI with the dynamic text size modifier uh, to do that. Uh, okay, yeah, so now I'm, I'm going quickly because that's kind of a grab bag of three view modifier. There's a lot of new <laughs> mod view modifier in SwiftUI. And again, there are just small thingy just to allow you to build better apps. And I say better apps, but it's to build apps in SwiftUI that you would have to resort in going back to UIKit, especially for iOS apps, to build them. Uh, this next example is the text selection modifier. So, you know, on macOS, most of the text or a good way to, so, to know whether it's a native app or not is you just try to select text in the app. And if it's select, if you can select it, um, you know that usually it's using a app kit. Uh, so if you are now as a text selection modifier that allows you to turn on this functionality and funnily enough, it's also available on iOS. If you've built a lot of forms, you know how hard it is to respond to the, the, the return key on a software keyboard and have specific logic. Apple has now added an unsubmit modifier that can be triggered when you press the return key and you don't have to listen to the text view weird events of all your text field. It just gets called automatically. That's nice. Swift UI does that for you. Same thing about having a special label for your return key. It, and that modifier is called summit label. So you can define in a URR key. All those buttons should have this return key style. Um, and while we're on the topic of building forms, there's a new property wrapper called focus state and the focused view modifier. And again, those two allows you to define your focus state and especially which feel are focus and what they mean. So it means that you can either change the state, the focus state programmatically with the value that you stored using the property wrapper or literally just tab tab and your code gets updated, your state in your uh, Swift UI view gets updated correctly. So it's the new way in, not new way, but it's the way in Swift UI to keep track of where the focus state is. Last but not least, I don't want to go through all of this again, but you can imagine that all the discussion we have about UI button configuration, there are the equivalents in buttons and default button styles in uh, UI uh, in Swift UI's buttons. So for sure, there's a lot of new UI uh, button styles, like default button styles that give you a lot of the the same accessibility or customization, excuse me, that UI button configuration gives you. For sure, the CL location button is also a, as an equivalent in SwiftUI called location button. But a couple of examples, like you can define the custom size Apple as a like small, medium, large as a control size, as kind of uh, values that the OS knows. Okay, I want a small button, small button in iOS 15 is this size. So you don't have to give it a CG size. You also have like button roll. So you know that if this button is triggering a destructive, a destructive operation, it will automatically ask for confirmation before calling your action on your button, having confirmation dialogue and things like that. So a lot of that is now more or less in sync between Swift UI and UIKit. And for sure, 
pop-up menus, pull-down buttons, and toggle buttons are there too. Okay, last up in the UI frameworks. Um, I don't have that much to say, but I've talked a bit about Catalyst. Again, I think the big things that are being added to uh, Catalyst in Monterey, so uh, is more or less tooltips. So to have a tooltip interaction, have custom interaction, or uh, you can now use uicontrol.tooltip. And that means that for a lot of the UI controls that you have in your app, you don't have to build it custom by using a tooltip interaction. On top of that, UI label has a new property called show expansion text when truncated. And guess what? When your text gets truncated, it has an expansion tooltip that shows you the rest of the text and it's pretty useful. It was unclear to me because sometimes they, they, they talk about features in the Mac Catalyst section, but you know that they come back to iPad. It's unclear to me if tooltips are on iPad now or not, but my impression is no. But I kind of wish that uh, they would come, especially like the show expansion text when truncated. That would be really fun on a lot of iOS apps and really useful. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, the last other part that was really of important in the Mac Catalyst updates is a lot about the buttons. Um uh, Yes, you have a lot of those button styles, but Apple was saying, okay, be careful about what to use. Also, when to use the Mac behavior or the iPad behavior. Now you can control that per control, not per your whole application. So let's say you want on a specific button to have the iPad look or the iPad behaviors. You can turn that on or off per button same thing with ui slider the, you can now use a new property called ui uh, preferred behavioral style that is driven by ui behavioral style uh, same thing on the mac you also uh, that we discuss uh, on the ipad there's new pointer style again a lot of those things that came with ui kit there's a reason why they came with ui kit is to be available on mac list so that you can also have them on the ipad Last framework for today, and I say last framework, but I think it's it's more of a big change for Swift itself. And I quickly mentioned it in my last episode for the main reason of back deployment. And I want to end this episode talking about Swift concurrency with async await. So like I said, uh, I spent maybe five minutes in the last episode about that because there was a saga of saying like, when Apple announced that last year, the new Swift concurrency support in Swift itself, I was supposed to be iOS 15 and up only, or macOS Monterey and up. And with a lot of pressure for people, Apple decided to back deploy it to um, to older OSs. So I think this year it's time to fully discuss Swift concurrency uh, because even if you're no longer supporting iOS 14 or iOS 13. I think right now you can rely on the fact that the OS that your app will run on quote-unquote natively supports Swift concurrency. Like you don't have to rely on um, on weird acts and especially I'll have a link in the show notes about the, the Swift forum thread about that but I kind of forgot that to do the back deploy of Swift concurrency to iOS 14 and 13 you more or less go back to having a copy of the Swift 5.5 runtime in your binary as a or as a dy lib that gets injected in your project so that's more or less how they did it like 
the old time. Uh, but a quick note is that Swift concurrency was introduced part of Swift 5.5 and Xcode 13. And the back deployment functionality was introduced in part of Swift 5.5.2 and that got shipped in Xcode 13.2. So now that's out of the way, kind of talking about the back deployment, I kind of want to go get into a little bit more detail. I don't want to spend the next like 30 hours talking about like Swift concurrency and its menu details versus like trading models and things like that. But I want to talk about why Swift concurrency I think is a big change for Swift and in a good way. Um, so Swift concurrency brings first class citizen support for asynchronous and concurrent execution of code in the Swift language. I think previously the the devs that are in our audience will remember that you would rely on trend management and similar technique to have concurrency code execution or to allow your process to execute uh, other code while it's, let's say, fetching data from a blocking task like a network call. And a lot of those APIs that either you were using from Apple or you were building yourself were designed based on closure. So aka you, when you call the, the sacing API, you give it a chunk of code to execute when it's done. And one of the main downside in the Swift world is that you cannot really use too much Swift like language feature. I think a good example of that is the the error management with try catch, which is I think pretty powerful and pretty easy to use when you have more imperative style of code. Uh, in the closure approach of async APIs, you're kind of forced to pass errors as a parameter, and that kind of like closure approach also inverse or doesn't make it for a natural flow of of your code when you were to read from da- from top to bottom, like let's say. Uh, a function uh, for that and on top of that life is not made of one async operation in your app and then once it's done you're done and you can go on your merry way like if only (laughs) yeah if only that's kind of it's funny that you mentioned that because usually you have to do multiple async operation and some are concurrently i need to do those two things at the same time and once that's done i they take the output of those two and then execute another async operation. And it, you can imagine that you have closures for everything. You end up with closure L. Aking, you end up with a closure inside of a closure inside of a closure. And then you need to make sure that you call the completion closure for everybody at the correct parameters. And that gets complicated quite easily. And that's what Swift concurrency is trying to help developer is to bring syntax and big language feature to make asynchronous task easier to manage and simpler to think about so swift concurrency makes you declare an asynchronous task the same way you would declare a synchronous task aka calling a function the main difference is you would add a certain keyword called await to indicate to the runtime, Swift runtime, that yeah, you know what, like this will block. You can go do something else while we wait. So okay, that sounds magic, but for sure you need to use a new syntax, and that's where the await keyword comes in. So let's take for example a function that returns a string. So that like we call it, and it returns you a string. That's super easy. But if you take another function that returns a random string, 
calling that new function under Swift concurrency just require adding a wait, like I was saying, and then your program or that part of the program gets suspended until this thing is returned. So that sounds like heavy simplification of threading and concurrency. And it kind of is, but it's just a simplification. I think that's the main goal is doing that. It's not making it magic because there is lots of things that can still go wrong. You can yes. still write race condition. You can still write code that blocks and is stuck block forever. Or you can fucked up the way you share data between threads. I don't know how much you, you're planning to go into the technical detail of how this is implemented, but knowing what I do about how uh, async await was implemented in Node.js and in uh, C Sharp, which I believe is where async await originated, mm-hmm. it's literally just syntax trigger around promises. It literally uses the implementation of promises that was already there. It's just giving you a more readable way of using promises. Um, I'll I'll leave going to the real nitty gritty details. That's why I say I don't want to spend like a couple yeah. of hours on that. But my understanding is that's not just that. That there are more things added to the runtime that is helping you on this, but it's not doing all the work for you. And that's kind of where I was going. For for example, I was about to uh, to mention like yes. You can still write uh, race condition. You can still end up blocking your program because you fucked up your priority, uh, your operation priorities and things like that. And you can also have uh, data corruption between threads, but they've added tools to help you that. For example, the actor pattern that they've added is really there to have blocking uh, operations. So when you create an actor, it is a way to share and modify data between threads. And the way you package your data in an actor, I don't want to say struct because it's really actor or something, but let's call it the struct for the sake of conversation. It's a way to tell Swift, package this data and all the operations on it needs to be async awaited to happen because Swift will be able to say, uh, will be able to do the right calculations to allow one thread say oh i want to increment a counter oh somebody's already accessing it so i have to wait and kind of like take ownership of the lock do the increment counter and then let leave it and again all of these are based on the um async word keywords and the meaning behind this to allow those kind of operations again uh i've started to use it a little bit but not enough where i it major walls and not enough where when i hit those walls i kind of wanted to look to peek under the hood uh so i'm sure that's gonna come in the next few months <laughs> uh but i am not there yet but from what i've seen it it seems pretty interesting on the other side is there are a couple of weird things i think the one example that comes to mind is Less about Swift concurrency, but how Swift concurrency is simulated in the simulator. Uh, oh no, uh, it's not concurrent. Let's let's put oh it this way. Oh my god! One. Yes, it's kind of like just a sequence of operation oh, where no. it does one operation at a time. Why is so, the simulator so cringe all the time? <laughs> so yeah, uh, one of a colleague was trying to build a new 
like a new module in our application. It was like, yeah, don't test concurrency on the simulator because oh, you can run things, but don't expect that it will run the way it runs on the simulator because concurrency is really dumb on the simulator. Oh uh, so yeah, so there are upsides and downsides. I think uh, possibly the current other downside, it's been a while since I look at that part, but I know that by default, Xcode is not too bitchy about uh, Swift concurrency. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of, I think it's Swift compiler flags that you can enable where it would audit your code and say, like, hey, you're doing an, like you're doing something that is dangerous or that could create a race condition. And I've seen since uh, Swift concurrency's introduction in Xcode 13, and Swift 5.5 that people were sharing on Twitter a couple of uh, compiler flags to turn on because those were not real build settings in Xcode just yet. And that is one of their goals for Swift 6, right? Is to have those catch the most common race conditions and way to create a race condition part of Swift concurrency. So... I'm well aware that this is a 1.0 and that the next major version of Swift should really improve it too. But I think right now with the addition of the actor and how to package your data so it's it's not only easier but it's at this point and that's where I, I'm about to say near impossible because I'm not 100% sure that if you use an actor, there's not weird ways that you can make it allow two threads write the same data at once. But my understanding is the way it's built, that's impossible. Yeah, I think the the good thing, and this is a very Apple thing too, the good thing about being late to the party with async await on Swift is that they have the hindsight to see what other languages kind of stumbled on and they can already provide solutions to problems that are significant issues in other languages right and i think that's kind of what they did with the actor pattern here is like hey here's a shortcoming that is a pain in the ass to manage in other languages that have implemented async await before let's add something from the get-go so that our users don't get screwed as badly as other people did on other platforms and so that they can build the right habits right away as they adopt the technology for the first time instead of having to report everything later to those new technologies yeah, no, I I think you're making a good point. And the other reason why I'm not peeking under the cover for this episode is it kind of reminds me of something you said like last episode, where it's like it takes two years for developers to understand the minor yeah. details of a specific console. And I think, not saying it takes two years, but I think it's going to be the same thing. Like even today, when I write async code, async code I still think a lot in like NS operation language mm-hmm. if you see, if you say so so once swift concurrency becomes second nature to me as a developer i think that's when we'll be able to say you know what it was as good as apple said in 2021 when they announced it or you know what it was good but there was that that, that, that was problematic in the end or worse than that it was just syntax chugger like you said it was node that you mentioned it was that uh well i think technically it's true about c sharp as well it's just syntactic okay. sugar around promises and i think like i'm pretty sure that is true about swift as well it's just it doesn't really matter to how you use it that's just i mean you can literally implement async await with just having promises and adding syntactic sugar it's literally equivalent 
operations to what you can do with promises and you can write them in both styles in most languages. So like to me, I don't see why it wouldn't be implemented that way in Swift. Fair point. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, last point about uh, Swift concurrency, which I think will kind of help to build this kind of this uh, tickling sense of like, okay, now I feel I understand Swift concurrency is I think it's going to be easy to adopt because it was kind of a, as with Swift 1.1, uh, 1.0, like you could start building an app and then use the current API. So the same thing happened right now with Swift concurrency is major portion of Apple SDKs were updated to take advantage of Swift concurrency. And in theory, I haven't played with that too much, but if your async API, current async APIs that you've built follow a specific format, they can be automatically transformed into their async await equivalent in Swift concurrency by the compiler. And I think that's also what happened for a lot of the Apple APIs is that they're just like in the end closure-based APIs that gets wrapped correctly into a a promise uh, where it's pretty easy to uh, infer where to call, do the work, and then call I'm done with the work uh, internally. So it does mean that you want to do network call using URL session, you can do it using uh, async await. You want to make sure that you don't call UIKit stuff on the background thread. UIKit has been annotated with a main actor for a majority of its functionality. And again, as you might expect, the main actor is an actor provided by Apple that is equivalent to previously talking about the main queue or the, or the main thread. We, I brought up a couple of functionality in SwiftUI that are dependent on task and async stuff, like refreshable or the, even in task modifier. Those were added part of concurrency. And I haven't talked too much about core data this year because there's not that much, too stu- much new stuff in it. But again, core data has modernized its API to use Swift concurrency too. So you could see that if you want to start adopting in certain parts of your application, like Swift UI, like Swift, Swift concurrency allows you allows that. So you can build confidence, you can play with it. And I say play with it, but you can try it in maybe less critical part of your application, see what you think, see what the issues you run into production with it, and learn with it, grow with it. And I think that's one of the parts I really like right now with my understanding of Swift concurrency. So I hope you you envision saying now that we are like iOS 15 and up, we don't have to have fat binaries because we have to do back deployment. Again, if you need to do that or if you're curious enough to do that with Swift concurrency and you're willing to pay the cost of having the Swift 5.5 runtime in your binary, you can back deploy it to iOS 14 and iOS 13. Since the release, I haven't heard personally too much from developer fans about experience for this. Um, but I think your mileage may vary. I'm unsure how long that will that be supported. I'm eager to see that. Uh, but it seems that it's still supported. One of the things that's really interesting to me as a Xamarin developer is that technically it would be really sweet to use all of this async await stuff in C sharp, the language that sort of popularized async await, except it's Swift only, so it can't be bridged over to 
C sharp, which means Microsoft has to manually go in and implement their own async wrapper around each async thing that behaves like async await in C sharp instead of just bridging async await directly. That sounds fun. It's not, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was utterly it's, sarcastic. It's just depressing. Yeah, no, it's it's another good example of what we were discussing in your examiner episode where the more Apple introduced Swift-only APIs, the more those cross-platform or those native cross-platform tools will slowly but surely die. Yeah. I'm debugging a bunch of async await stuff right now in Xamarin, so it's on my t- the top of my mind. Uh, we're having big performance issues with one of the apps that I maintain. Well, let's be honest, all of the apps that I maintain. And <laughs> trying to figure out where the bottlenecks are and how we can optimize this stuff is a real headache because the profiler is only included with the enterprise license of Visual Studio, and it is quite expensive. Fun. Yeah. So... That wraps it up, uh, Swift Concurrency. I hope that part of this kind of uh, reminder of what's available to you, even if for Swift Concurrency, that's a small asterisk that was already available to you if you were using Xcode 13, uh, 13.2 or 13.21, that if you didn't have the time to visit or to consider it, that you could start considering it. I think, like I said, I've started to play with it a bit more and start to build functionality at work a bit more because it fits with uh, the work my new, the team I'm working on now is working on and building modules with it. So I have more experience and more exposure to it. So I'm really good to see that and see where it falls flat, that's for sure. Uh, I know you were kind of asking about what I experienced already kind of of that. Not too much, but even if I'm really excited about this, I'm also really curious to know its limit and experience them. So it was fun when one of a colleague says, yeah, I'm having fun with Swift, yeah, Swift concurrency, except when I do run in simulator. So that was a fun <laughs> moment, uh, I think about 10 days ago when it happened. So as... With, as per transition, uh, tradition, excuse me, with those iOS deployment target tips, I hope that y- you were able to discover new APIs or APIs that you were aware of but forgot because they were introduced uh, a year ago. And uh, I hope you realize that now you might have some code that you can get rid of because now that you are on iOS 15 and up, you might have, you might no longer need your custom code and you might just rely on a new functionality that Apple has introduced that does exactly what you needed. So they are, I hope they are as good of a content that they are for me, which means really enlightening and really a good reminder. Uh, I like part of preparing for this episode. I think I have a list of three or four items that I kind of forgot. I've mentioned a couple uh, in the episode where I literally need to go to work and be like, oh yeah, I need to change my code to use the functionality uh, because I completely forgot those were existed. And that wraps up iOS 15 deployment target episode. I kind of have a trick question for you. Ooh, sorry. Okay, I, I was not expecting <laughs> a question. So go on. Yeah. If we're being honest about SwiftUI in the past few years... It has felt to me like if you wanted to use SwiftUI seriously in your application, like as the main UI framework for your application, let's say, you sort of were locked in to only supporting the latest version of iOS because so little of it actually worked for the first few years that you could reliably count on 
supporting like what was Swift UI one two years later because there was so little there that actually worked. Uh, do you think Swift UI is at a point now where for non-trivial applications, you can just commit to an N minus one strategy and get away with it with Swift UI? Or do you think it's still a good idea to stick with the latest version only? Uh, like to some degree, Swift UI, I'm, I'm like, obviously I'm cold on Swift UI in general, but mm-hmm. I feel like the added complexity that is such an immature framework right now just makes me not want to support any further back than I need to. Okay. Uh, I'll answer directly. I don't know. Uh, my l- experience with SwiftUI is still limited, uh, and that's changing. Um, so, but is it I... changing because you're finally able to actually access a kind of working version of SwiftUI because your deployment target finally caught up? No. Okay, it's unrelated it, to that. It's changing because I'm now working in a code base that is living with product, like shipping to production Swift UI code. I see. Okay. Whereas before, uh, where I, the other teams where I was, we were not slowly but surely, but we were kind of like adopting Swift UI. Uh, so a lot of my not feelings, but a lot of what I know is based from uh, some of my colleagues' experience. So you're correct that even still today, I recall last year, uh, a team that were building a new product and like that was already out ran into a couple of issues where like 15.3 broke something and they had to firefight a, a build out, uh, up to the App Store to fix it somehow because guess what? Apple introduced a regression in SwiftUI. So that's still there. Uh, the team that I am now on is has been a bit more not proactive, but a bit more uh, confident about SwiftUI. Mm. But to build it, they they built in such a way that a lot of their new UI in SwiftUI are built by saying like, okay, if they start to build it in uh, iOS 14, for example, say, okay, this UI is only available to our iOS 14 user. So this feature is only available to our iOS 14 user. Uh, and I think they've done that because they tried when iOS 13 was out with the first version and they kind of got burned too. Yeah. So I think at this point, the reason I say I'll start to live that more is because I'll have to deal Oh, it sounds bad, but I have to deal with the consequences <laughs> of having shipped already Swift UI code to prod about a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. So we have Swift UI views out there, and now they are Swift UI views that run on iOS 14, 15, and 16, even if we're in the working uh working to deprecate uh, to bump on minimum deployment target to go to 15, like literally this week. Mm-hmm. Uh so since I haven't fixed any of those bugs where you kind of have, okay, something happened, I don't know. I've seen that at work, that people had to do that, but I did not experience it. So that's my TLDR to, uh, my TLDR to this question is, I don't know. Fair enough. So, I mean, but I, you know what? That's one of the fun challenges uh, I was excited to take on as changing teams. Uh, I know this team was more like Swift UI focused, so that's kind of one of the things I'm eager to see and start to build an opinion on that because I hope that possibly with iOS 16 or even iOS 15 deployment target that you could consider Swift UI as an N-1. But okay. I'm not sure if it's there yet. 
Maybe next year you'll have a better opinion for us. I hope to. Cool. Okay, so you can find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 193, where you can find all of our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. Or you can find us individually on Twitter, kind of, because I'm kind of taking a break from Twitter. Uh, I'm at Sakarina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Nicolivier at Lucanoche, that's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.